Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome, football fans, to this NBC Sports Radio and NBCSN remote broadcast event. We are on the road at the NFL Scouting Combine, live from Indianapolis. It's Pro Football Talk Live. Let's do this, Florio. Hello, Indianapolis. We are here for the Scouting Combine for the next three days, five hours live today. Now, it gets a little confusing for the radio audience. You get three hours, then you get a three-hour re-air of the program. If you're watching on NBCSN, however, when we head over there an hour from now, four hours of live content. And we're going to try something a little different this year. We're going to take some of the podium press conferences live because they've reconfigured things. There's going to be a lot of the athletes coming through on the days that we're here. Usually when we're here, the athletes don't start showing up until late in the week after we've shut it down and they're around over the weekend. So one of the positive changes from the reconfiguration of the workouts, moving them to prime time, so it's the ultimate reality show about nothing on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. The athletes are coming through earlier during the day, and we're going to bring you some of what they have to say from the press conferences on NBCSN. We're going to get some of them on set. We've got Chargers coach Anthony Lynn and Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury on set today live and then after we're done today that's when the work starts 11 different coaches and gms will be interviewed after the program and we will bring those interviews to you while we're here on wednesday and thursday while we're also trying to track down some of the players and there's going to be kind of a loose flow to all of this because this is the first year they've really changed things up so we are here we are flexible and ultimately we're going to be talking football for the next five hours, again, three hours on NBC Sports Radio with the re-air and the podcast and everywhere else you can find the content. Now, there are plenty of boxes to check when it comes to the scouting combine, some of the things we talk about every year, how fast a guy runs 40 yards in a straight line, how many times he can bench press 225 pounds, how big his hands are, how much he weighs, how tall he is or isn't. That isn't an issue this year because Kyler Murray isn't here. I think Tua Tonga-Vailoa was the shortest quarterback at six feet even, which actually seems kind of tall after Kyler Murray last year. But for Tuesday, the story of the day that affects all aspects of the NFL 
is the meeting that's coming up in 11 hours, 5 p.m. Eastern. I was a little surprised it starts so late, but 5 p.m. Eastern, that's when the entire NFL Management Council plus the full NFLPA leadership, the executive committee, and the 32-member board of player representatives. And I think there's only one crossover. I think Richard Sherman's on the executive committee and the board of player reps. Other than that, it's different guys, which means 11 plus 32 minus 1 is 42, if my math is correct, and it rarely is. So 42 members of union management plus executive director Demora Smith. That gets us back to 43. There'll be more than 50 people in the room. Good luck keeping things orderly. Good luck keeping things calm with that many personalities, people who are inclined to pop off, and that may happen. People who may be inclined to secretly record the proceedings. Remember the last time there was a big union and league get-together, 2017, about the anthem controversy and somebody secretly recorded comments from the owners and leaked them to the New York Times? I'll tell you what, I know they want to have a positive tone for this thing, but I'd have a no cell phone rule. Everybody leaves their phones. Mark them, leave them outside the room. Nobody brings in their phones. Now, I don't know how much more detailed you can be to ensure that no one has any recording devices on them, but take their phones, everybody's phones. Or assume that anything you say in that room can and will be used against you because it is being recorded because it's already been done. That's an interesting wrinkle to all of this. And, you know, from our perspective, hey, we'd like to have some of this stuff recorded. We'd like to have the content. We'd like to know what's being said. But if they want to have an orderly and effective meeting today and they want to be able to talk about things candidly and freely, you don't want to have to worry about somebody recording it. I think that even if they do take all the phones, I think anyone in that room needs to assume that whatever they're saying is being recorded. Just assume it. If it's not, great. If it is, then you're protected from saying something that's going to come back to haunt you later. Something that happened yesterday as it relates to today's meeting, I think was extremely significant. I don't think it got the attention it should have. The NFLPA changed its rules on the fly for ratifying a new labor deal. As of Friday, what the union believed, and I know this for a fact, this was not misinterpretation of the NFLPA constitution. This is what the union leadership believed as of Friday. No matter how the board of player representatives, the 32-member group, one per team, elected by each roster, no matter how that 32-member group voted on the new CBA, it was still going to all players for an up or down vote with a simple majority, 50% plus one of roughly 1,900 voting members of the union, dues-paying members. If 50% plus one vote for it, it goes through, no matter what the Board of Player Rep says. It could be 32 to zero against, and the full union membership would still vote on it. That was the message and plan on Friday. Out of the blue on Monday came a memo from the union explaining that there has been some mis communication, misperception, miss something. Look, I don't want to start pointing fingers here. The union leadership believed that the approach that they had planned to follow on Friday was the correct approach. So somebody pushed back behind the scenes. Somebody said something, did something to get the attention of the very top of the union's leadership to change the approach. Here it is. There's been some confusion. 
about the process governing the Board of Player Representatives' vote on the proposed CBA, the union said in a memo sent to all agents on Monday and obtained by PFT. The proposed CBA is sent to the full player membership for ratification only if a majority of the Board of Player Representatives votes to send it to them. If a majority of the board does not vote to send the proposed CBA to the full player membership, it will not be sent. It will not be sent. If two-thirds or more of the board votes to recommend to full player membership that the proposed CBA be ratified, it will be sent with a formal recommendation. So there's three possibilities. Fewer than 50% of the board of player representatives vote in favor of it. It does not go to the full union for a vote. That is new, and that is stunning. And that gives the Board of Player Representatives far more power than they had as of Friday. If it's more than two-thirds, it goes with a recommendation. The window where it would go for a full vote without a recommendation from the Board of Player Representatives would be fewer than two-thirds, more than one-half. Again, it's not in the Constitution. The only thing that's mentioned in the Union Constitution is that with two-thirds vote of the Board of Player Representatives, there will be a recommendation. That's it. Nothing about a minimum of a simple majority of the Board of Player Representatives before to go to a vote. And I don't know where this came from, but I believe this is a message by the union primarily to the league because I think there is a sense within the league and the people who will be negotiating or not negotiating later today on behalf of the league that it doesn't matter what the Board of Player Representatives thinks. And when this thing goes to a full vote of the union all members, at least 50%, will be voting in favor of it. So that ain't going to happen. That's the message. you got to convince at least half of the 32-member Board of Player Representatives on Tuesday when they meet at 5 p.m. Eastern to adopt this thing or it's going no farther. They may be incorrect in their interpretation, but here's the thing. Who's going to fight them? Who's going to push back? What member of the rank and file is going to stand up and say, gentlemen, I don't believe you are correctly interpreting the NFLPA Constitution. Most of these guys are in their mid-20s or younger. They're not going to be inclined to fight. As one agent told me earlier this week, they're sitting around playing Xbox. They're waiting for guidance from their agents as to what they should or shouldn't do. Now, I guess it's possible in theory that an agent could try to cajole one of these players into pushing back filing suit, attacking. But the problem with any agent being perceived as attacking the union, the union regulates the agents. And if the union decides that they don't like you as an agent, man, they can make your life miserable. They have the discretion, they have the authority to make your life miserable. So this is going to be a very, very interesting day. But it's not going to get interesting until 5 p.m. Eastern. Before that, there'll be plenty of other things to discuss. And as I said, we will be here all day and beyond. Once we go off the air at 11 a.m. Eastern, it will be at least 11 coaches and general managers who will be talking to Chris Sims and yours truly as we begin to get a feel for where these teams are heading as free agency approaches. And, you know, one of the points I made yesterday that we need to be keeping our eye on as these CBA talks continue, there is a possibility that they will delay the start of the league year to accommodate further CBA talks. Everybody thinks this has to be done now so that the new league year can begin on March 18. There's no reason why the new league year has to begin on March 18. It can start later. In 2011... 
free agency came after the draft because of the lockout. I'm not saying that that would happen now, but in theory, you could delay free agency until May. You could delay it until June to accommodate these CBA talks. These CBA talks are a big deal for both sides. If they need more time to get it done, and if the NFLPA keeps digging in for more, then the NFL has the power, if it wants to, to rewrite the calendar whenever it wants to and delay this process. These deadlines are real, but they're also artificial. The real deadlines that they need to be concerned about, number one, the vote for a new NFLPA president and various new members of the executive committee, because depending upon who's in charge, that could change everything as it relates to the negotiations. And number two, they want to negotiate new TV deals. The broadcast networks are ready. The cable networks are ready. The streaming providers are ready. They want to get it done. And that's a point that I think the NFLPA needs to take more seriously because not the upper leadership, because they are taking it seriously. It's the board of player reps that need to understand. They may blow their window to get the most they possibly can. So that's where we are. That's where we stand. And that's going to be one of the major topics of focus and emphasis tonight. We'll see what happens with that. We'll see what the aftermath of it is tomorrow. Meanwhile, the scouting combine is open. And this room that I am in that is currently empty, although I've noticed that there's more people here this year at 6 a.m. than there used to be. It used to be a ghost town at 6 a.m. It's not quite a ghost town this morning. So it'll fill up in here quickly. Sims will be here eventually. And when we return, we'll talk about some of the things that came out of the first day of the Combine, the all-important player hand size, plus other things relevant to the early news, trickling out of Indianapolis for the Scouting Combine. More PFT Live coming at you right after this. Over 300 of the very best college football players have been invited to the NFL Scouting Combine. Let's see who Florio likes. This is Pro Football Talk Live in Indianapolis. Here's Mike. 20 minutes after the hour, Tuesday morning, Pro Football Talk Live, 40 minutes away from our simulcast on NBCSN. Something that emerged yesterday while Peter King and I were on the air. Joe Burrow had his hand size measurement a mere nine inches. Uh Uh-oh, small hands. You know what they say about a guy with small hands? Can't hold on to a football very well. He'll still be the top pick in the draft. It'll likely be the Cincinnati Bengals. That won't scare the Bengals away, although maybe he would like it to. Maybe he was, maybe, you know, we've heard the stories about guys trying to make their hands bigger. Maybe Joe Burrow is trying to make his hands smaller. Maybe he kept his finger and his, his thumb and his pinky closer together so it would only be nine inches. So maybe that'll scare the Bengals away. Probably not. Burrow tweeted, I'm considering retirement after I was informed the football will be slipping out of my tiny hands. Please keep me in your thoughts. Patrick Mahomes responded on Twitter by saying, my small hands are doing all right so far. I believe in you. Now, Mahomes had 9.25-inch hands, which, you know, quarter of an inch, that makes a big difference, potentially. This, this is part of the annual ritual. This is part of what happens at the scouting combine. I, and I think, you know, the more I do it and the more I'm around it, the more numb I get to it. And it's like every February, these same issues come back and it's a big deal for a week and then it's gone forever until the next year and it's the same issues. I guess every year there is a group of people who are waking up to this for the first time and they're thinking that hand size actually means something. And I'll talk to Sims about it later. Sims has those giant hands like out of a claw machine, you know, 
And he's like, and his middle finger, I swear the tip of it glows and it can heal people. It's a freaking E.T. finger. But, uh, you know, what, what does hand size really mean? If you've got strong enough grip, you're going to hold on to the football. It doesn't matter how big or small your hand is. And it's not like a football is a big, giant volleyball. It's not a huge thing. But obviously, it's better to have bigger hands than small hands from the standpoint of holding on to the football. But you can, you can get to a point where your hands are too big that you can't properly throw it. So, look, it's all the data points that come out combine week. We know about some of them. A lot of them we don't know about, but we'll hear about them next week. We'll hear about the crazy questions that were posed by teams to players. That's part of the NFL calendar. This week, it's hand size and bench press and how fast a guy runs 40 yards in a straight line. Next week, it's the interviews of all the guys who were here being questioned, grilled, interrogated by the teams, talking about the things that they were asked. Remember a couple of years ago, Darius Geis? He got himself into a little bit of a predicament because he apparently, as far as the league could tell when they investigated it, embellished his claim that he was asked something, I can't even remember what it was, something he shouldn't have been asked. They looked into it and they determined that no one asked him that question. Another question, an important threshold question that is asked of every player who's here at the Combine, will you be working out? And one thing I've noticed in recent years There's less shaming of the players who choose not to work out. Chase Young, the great Ohio State pass rusher, won't be working out at the combine, which is smart. He has nothing to gain and everything to lose. For a guy like Chase Young, he should do nothing. He shouldn't work out at his pro day. He shouldn't work out here. He shouldn't do private workouts. Quietly over the past four or five years, one of the dynamics that's been happening that we don't know much about because the teams try not to publicize it because they don't want this to really catch on. There are players who have refused to do any private workouts for teams. Christian McCaffrey is one of them. Did it hurt him? No. I'm waiting for the guy who says, the hay is in the barn. I am doing nothing. I'm not working out at the combine. I'm not doing a pro day. I'm not doing private workouts. I am doing nothing. I've played college football for the last three or four years. Everything I am capable of doing is found in the film from those games. Go watch it. And you can either draft me or you can wait until someone else in your division drafts me and you have to deal with me twice a year, period. That's what I'm waiting for. And that's the great conflict for the NFL because as this event gets bigger and bigger, as they turn the scouting combine into a primetime TV event, They need these guys to choose to work out. And that gets back to something we discussed last week. At some point, they got to pay these guys. Would Chase Young work out at the Combine this week if he was getting $500,000 to do it? $250,000? What number would it take to get Chase Young to say, yeah, I'll work out. I'm going to work out anyway on Thursday. I'll I'll work out in front of cameras. Yeah, I'll I'll do a three-cone drill, and I'll, I'll run a 40 for you. I'll do all that stuff. What's the number that it would take? That's where this is heading. I'm telling you, it's probably considered bad form to talk about this in Indianapolis. This thing isn't going to be in Indianapolis many more years. This could be the last year. Next year could be the last year. I think it's signed through next year. I think next year could be the last year. At some point, this thing is going to Los Angeles. Peter King and I were talking about that yesterday on the air. That stadium they have, the campus they have surrounding it, this thing's heading to L.A. No matter what anyone connected to the league is going to say, who wants it to stay here, who believes it's more convenient to stay here, 
for everyone, it feeds into it being a larger and larger event. And at some point, you're going to see the stands of SoFi Stadium, the new venue where the Rams and Chargers will be playing, filled with fans for these workouts. I guarantee it. And we always hear that, well, it's a job interview. You should submit. It's a job. It's not a job. Look, it is not a job interview. If anything, it's the teams that benefit from having the access to the players so they can better refine their draft boards. It's not a job interview. Anybody who is here at the Combine is deemed worthy of playing in the NFL. The goal is to find the players that will make the teams the best they possibly can be. If you're Chase Young, if you're Joe Burrow, if you're any of the top prospects, they want you. This isn't a competition among the players jockeying for position to say, pick me, pick me. This is the team figuring out which of these guys is going to help them the most. They need access to these guys. They need to be able to talk to them. They need, they need to be able to see them work out. They're looking for all the information that they can add to what they've done in college. So, and, and this is what it all comes down to. When a guy doesn't work out well, when a guy becomes a bust, you need to be able to go back and justify your work. Well, we did this, we did that, he did this, he ran this, he did this. We, we checked all the boxes. We were sure he was going to be great. It's not our fault he wasn't. That's what this is all about. It's a giant CYA convention, and uh, it is off and running here this week in Indianapolis. we got plenty more PFT Live still to come. We'll be back with more right after this. We're back covering the most intense four-day job interview of all time. It's Pro Football Talk Live at the 2020 NFL Scouting Combine. Let's see who Florio likes. 34 minutes after the hour, Tuesday PFT Live. Jerry Jones' bus has been sighted throughout Indianapolis over the past couple of days. And where Jerry goes, Stephen Jones not far behind. Stephen Jones spoke to the media on Monday. And one of the things that surprised a lot of people, Stephen Jones explained that there have been no negotiations with Dak Prescott's agent since September. Supposedly, the two sides were close to a deal that would have paid Prescott $33 million per year. Now, remember, that's new money. $33 million per year in new money when you factor in the $2 million per year that Dak Prescott was supposed to make and did make in 2019, it gets him in the range of $27 million per year on a long-term deal. He decided to play it out. Now he's in a position to get a lot more than $27 million per year on a long-term deal. Said Stephen Jones, it just kind of stopped. We left it where it was. I wouldn't say there was anything acrimonious. They felt they were done where they were. We felt like we were kind of where we were, and we never really got going again. Well, they're going to get going again soon because they'd like to get Dak Prescott's deal done before the deadline for applying the franchise tag. Why is that? Because they then like to apply the franchise tag instead to Amari Cooper, the guy they gave up a first-round pick to get, and the guy who has played for them for a year and a half. Remember last year in the run-up to the draft? The discussion about the Cowboys not having a first-round pick, and Stephen Jones say, hey, we have a first-round pick. When, when our pick's on the clock, I'll be watching film of Amari Cooper. But here's the thing. When you trade for a guy who's in the fourth year of his first-round contract, and the fifth year is going to be the option driven by the transition tag the prior year because he was a top-ten player, you're going to pay him $14 million in his fifth year. You know, for the first four years of 
that draft pick that they gave up to get Amari Cooper, midpoint of round one, maybe even the lower point of round one, somewhere between 15 and 20, they would have paid maybe less over the first four years than what they paid in one year for Amari Cooper. That's the problem. They've made a big financial investment for a year and a half, and he may walk away. And he will walk away if two things happen. One, if a new CBA is put in place and there's only a franchise tag or a transition tag available for the Cowboys. And two, if Dak Prescott isn't signed to a new contract before the deadline for applying the franchise tag. And that was a point we made last year. Amari Cooper and Dak Prescott need to get together and say, we're just not going to sign a long-term deal before the deadline for applying the franchise tag because you can only tag one of us. The other one will hit the market. Now, if there isn't a new CBA before the start of the league year, all teams will have both a franchise tag and a transition tag. And on the surface, a transition tag is kind of meaningless because all it gives a team is a right to match. But you know what it does? It slows down the process for the team that tries to get Amari Cooper. If you come out of the gates in free agency with an offer for Amari Cooper and you have to wait five days for the Cowboys to decide whether or not they're going to match it, if they match it, and they take the full five days to match it, you're screwed. Because whoever your plan B, plan C, plan D would have been has signed with another team. There is an urgency when March 16 rolls around. Not March 18. March 18 is when the league year begins. March 16 is when the negotiating period starts. That's when teams start burning up the phone lines saying to agents, we want your guy. Here's what we're offering. We need to know right now whether he wants it. And if the guy says anything other than he wants it, team moves on to the next guy on the list. If you have to worry about a five-day waiting period and an exercise of a right to match and you don't get the guy, then I'm on the air. Get out of here, dumbass. Jeez. Yeah, he just swoops right in. Chris Sims, ladies and gentlemen. With no warning, snuck up behind me. Sneak attack. Put the giant claw hand on my back. Anyway, whatever I was saying, I can't remember what it was. Oh, something about franchise tag, transition tag, Amari Cooper, and... That's where Dak Prescott has plenty of leverage. The idea that Dak Prescott, if he says to the Cowboys, I'm not doing the deal, it almost guarantees that Amari Cooper is going to be able to get the top offer on the open market if and when he chooses to leave. Another thing Stephen Jones said that was intriguing about Dak Prescott. He's our quarterback. He's our quarterback for the future. We have nothing but the greatest respect for him. There's no thoughts like that. Talking about going in a different direction for a quarterback. And I don't know why you come out and say that if you're Stephen Jones, because I feel like the rumors that have popped up in recent weeks about the Cowboys making a play for Tom Brady have been fueled in part by maybe a little leverage, maybe a little leverage play. Although I don't think that's going to work. Even if the Michael Irvin concept of the Cowboys pivoting from Dak Prescott to Tom Brady was in some way planted by the team in an effort to put pressure on Dak Prescott, I just can't help but wonder... And I think I believe that Dak Prescott, after everything he has shown by resisting offer after offer after offer and pressure and pressure and pressure from the Cowboys, he's not going to flinch in the face of something like that. He's going to say, you want to go sign that old man? That's your prerogative. I'll go somewhere else. If that's where it comes down to, if you don't want me, if you don't have the appropriate regard for me after what I've done for you the last four years, I'll go somewhere else. I I would be very curious, though to see what Dak Prescott's true market value is. If he was in play, 
All right, because market value becomes irrelevant when it's time to talk about franchise tag, when it's time to talk about exclusive franchise tag and a starting point of $33.4 million that becomes $40 million for the second year. If he decides to go year to year like Kirk Cousins did, $73 million over the first two years, the franchise tag is what drives the discussion. The market becomes secondary. What would the market be for Dak Prescott? If he was free and clear available like Kirk Cousins was two years ago, Kirk Cousins got $28 million. Now, since then, five or six quarterbacks have done better than that. What would Dak get? Would he get 35 on the open market? Would there be a land rush for Dak Prescott? We've got him ranked as our number one free agent in the list that Shereen Williams worked very hard to put together. And I don't disagree with, hey, it's our list. I, I adopt and accept and ratify whatever she did. But what would he get? If he was free and clear, if it was Dak Prescott instead of Tom Brady, it was on the brink of doing a free agency tour or the tour is I sit on my throne and you come see me. What would he get? What would he be worth? Would it be 40 million? It's a given that Patrick Mahomes is going to get 40 million. Has anybody ever said Dak Prescott's a 40 million dollar quarterback? The Cowboys were eight and eight last year. That's why I was intrigued and fascinated by the possibility of the Cowboys considering the Tom Brady for Dak Prescott swap. If you're Jerry Jones, you have to at least be tempted by the possibility of getting Tom Brady and going all in and trying to win a Super Bowl now versus trying to continue to build with Dak Prescott and hoping that you can get to the point where you need to be. Now, they've got reason to be hopeful. With Mike McCarthy there as the head coach, we'll have Mike McCarthy on set, by the way, tomorrow, live here from Indianapolis. When you consider what McCarthy did with Aaron Rodgers, what will he do with Dak Prescott? Can he get more out of Dak Prescott than Jason Garrett got out of Dak Prescott? How much of the 8-8 eight and eight last year was the coach's fault, the coaching staff's fault, versus Dak Prescott's responsibility? And how much should a quarterback ever be blamed for a team going 500? These are all things to be determined by the Cowboys as they continue to try to put a value on this. So I see, ideally for the Cowboys, the deadline for application of the franchise tag as being the moment where they'd like to get Prescott done because they want to be able to tag Cooper. That, in and of itself, gives Prescott extra leverage. Then, if they don't get a deal for Prescott done and they tag him, I think the next real deadline is the start of the offseason program because I do not think Dak will show up. And we went through this last week. If the Cowboys exercise their right to keep Dak Prescott off the open market, which is what application of the franchise tag is, Dak should exercise his rights under the CBA to not show up. They've applied leverage and pressure to him by keeping him off the market. He applies leverage and pressure to them by staying away from everything until he gets the kind of deal that he wants. So, start of the offseason program, do they sign him? If they don't sign him then and he stays away for the full offseason, the next deadline that is relevant is July 15. That is when the period for signing a franchise tag player to a long-term deal expires. After that, it can only be a one-year deal. Now, you know, in the past, we've had arguments about, well, there's no reason to hold out after that because they can't sign you to a long-term contract. No, but you know what you can do? You can get more money on a one-year deal. And maybe that's what Dak would do. Hey, you want me to show up for training camp? I mean, think about it. It's a basic business proposition. If I wait until right before the start of the season, let's assume they use the exclusive franchise tag so nobody can negotiate with Dak Prescott and potentially sign him to an offer sheet and pill for him for two first-round picks as compensation. $33.4 million. Okay, fine. 
It's 33.4 million if I show up right before the start of the season. You want me to show up now for training camp? I don't have any obligation to show up for training camp. I can wait until right before the start of the season. How much more are you going to pay me to come to training camp? 35? 37? 38? That's never really been done. All we've ever seen is teams apply terms like, we won't use the franchise tag on you again if you make it to the Pro Bowl. We've never seen a team offer a player more money on a one-year franchise tag deal after that July 15 deadline. So that becomes the next tipping point in this. Number one, the franchise tag application deadline. Number two, start of the offseason program. Number three, July 15. Number four, the start of training camp. And then I would say number five would be the start of the preseason because by then you still have time to get Dak Prescott ready in the Mike McCarthy offense. And then the ultimate de- – and, you know, you can't rule out the possibility of Dak Prescott holding out to the regular season, but I, I would not – stay away from those game checks of more than $2 million each at 33.4. I would not do that. At some point, you show up, and you get paid, and you put in the year, and then you move toward 2021, and you do it all over again, like we've seen others, including Kirk Cousins, do. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, Mark Murphy, the Packers CEO and a member of the competition committee, is intrigued by the XFL's kickoff formation. Is there a chance the NFL would actually adopt it. Plus, a clue from Murphy on how a 17-game schedule would look. We'll talk about that when PFT Live continues right after this. They all want to get drafted, but not all of them will. We're back live at the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis. It's Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio. The thing I like the best about the XFL, without question, is the kickoff formation, in part because the NFL has been flailing for the past seven, eight, nine years to try to improve the kickoff, make it safer without making it irrelevant. What the NFL has done as a practical matter, it's made it safer by making it less relevant. The idea is, look, we can't reduce the inherent nature of the collisions that happen on a kickoff, so we'll just try to have fewer of them. Now, more recently, they've reconfigured the formation to take that full-speed collision out of it, or at least to minimize it. You don't have the running start on kickoff anymore, and that running start, basic Newtonian physics, if you have that running start at the time the ball is kicked, you're up to full speed. One guy's moving full speed in one direction, another guy moving full speed or close to it in the other direction. They have a collision. You have concussions. You have potential broken necks. When you think about how that helmet dips right at the point of impact, C4, C5 in the spinal cord, that's what happened to Kevin Everett back in 2007. That is one of the big concerns. So how is the NFL ever going to come up with a true solution to the kickoff? We've heard discussions about the 4th and 15 play as an alternative. That's been lingering, and that's been dusted off. It was something that was done at the Pro Bowl, which makes me think it's something the NFL is thinking about as an alternative to a kickoff. Then comes the XFL with a revolutionary approach to the kickoff where the ball is kicked from the 30 of the kicking team and the 10 teammates of the kicker are lined up on the 35 of the receiving team with 10 teammates of the return specialist only five yards away on the 30 of the receiving team and the ball must land somewhere between the goal line and the 20. If it doesn't hit the target zone, The receiving team gets the ball at the kicking team's 45. Now, that seems a tad draconian, and I think if the NFL would adopt this kickoff formation, maybe you don't put it at the 45. Maybe you put it at the 40 of the receiving team, not the 45 of the kicking team. But I like it. I remember from the first game the XFL played just a few weeks ago. 
the Seattle Dragons at the D.C. Defenders. The kickoff was like, what is this? And it was great. And it reminded me of electric football because the ball's in the air and you've got 20 guys who are just kind of frozen there waiting for the ball to be caught. It eliminates the high-speed collisions and it ensures that there will be kickoff returns. It incentivizes a return by disincentivizing, putting the ball outside of that window of the 20 to the goal line because if you do, the other team gets it at the kicking team's 45. It's great. So Mark Murphy, the Packers CEO, said yesterday to Mark Maskey of the Washington Post, he's intrigued by the XFL's approach to putting the ball in play. Obviously, it makes it safer because you're taking the speed out of it, Murphy said. He also said there's been no formal discussion of the alternative formation by the league's rule-recommending body, the competition committee. They don't make the rules. You used to call them the rule-making body. They don't make any rules. They just recommend rules to ownership who decides whether or not to go ahead and adopt the rules. But I, I hope that the comment that there's been no formal discussion means that there has been informal discussion of the possibility. I hope they're talking about it. I hope they're thinking about it. And I ultimately hope they're not too proud to adopt the XFL's kickoff formation. It's not like they have a patent on it. It's not like you have to pay them. Just do it. Just take it. Steal it. It's a good idea. Take it. It's sitting there. It's begging you to take it, NFL. When you have your meetings this week, when you have your meetings next month, come up with a good argument against it. You can't. The only good argument against it is we didn't think of it. That's it. That's not a good enough argument. Another thing Mark Murphy said yesterday, as it relates to a 17th game, which is coming one way or the other, whether it's after a lockout or a strike or whatever it is, where there's going to be 17 games, he said that the way it would work is one conference would have nine home games one season and eight home games the next season, which means the other conference would have eight home games one season and nine the next season, which means that this 17th game is going to be an interconference game. And that was something Big Cat and I talked about on Friday. Now, he's a big proponent of this geographic rivalry setup. There are problems with that because you already play every team from the other conference once every four years anyway. So, like, in that fourth year where you already would be playing that team, who do you play for the extra game? Do you play the, the geographic rival twice that year? That's what Big Cat said they should do. The other flaw is, and I mentioned this yesterday in the item that I wrote, and I've also pointed it out when Big Cat and I were talking about it, and he admitted it, the idea that there are certain teams that you can't find a rival for. Once you match up the Chargers and the Rams, the 49ers and the Raiders, the Texans and the Cowboys, the Seahawks and the Broncos, there's no one left for the Cardinals to play as a geographic rival. I think the best approach, and this is the simplest and this is the cleanest, you have a rotation, because every year all four teams from one division in one conference play all four teams from another division. It rotates. AFC East plays all the teams of the NFC East one year, all the teams of the NFC North the next, NFC South the next, NFC West the next, and it keeps rotating. So there's three other divisions in the other conference. You're not playing any of the teams. So you rotate among those three other divisions, and you play, if you're a first-place team, you play a first-place team from that division. Second place plays second place. Third plays third fourth place fourth. That's how you handle the 17th game. I have a feeling that's the direction it's moving in. And it creates a little more parity. It adds another game where the opponent is tied to where both teams finished the year before. Right now, there's only two games in a 16-game schedule that deviate based on where you finished in your division. There's only two. Everything else is based on a formula and a rotation. 
you add that extra game, you add that extra matchup that is driven by where you finished, you've got three games at that point out of 17. Really, it's not that many. It's not as many as it used to be where how you finish in a division determines your schedule the next year. It used to be grossly weighted. Remember, they used to talk about the fifth-place schedule, what an advantage that was. That's not the case anymore. But if they're going to add a game, I like the idea of adding it in a way that makes it a little bit harder for the first-place team and a little bit easier for the fourth-place team. And it's an interconference game. You're going to get more potential Super Bowl rematches, immediate Super Bowl rematches that way. There's a lot of stuff they can do if they opt to go with that interconference game. And it sounds like that is where they are going. Here's where we're going. Quick break and sliding over to NBCSN. Four full hours from Indianapolis Scouting Combine. We'll be hearing from plenty of the prospects as they speak at the podium. We'll be having plenty of guests here. Sims is locked and loaded after he scared the crap out of me earlier. He'll be joining me officially coming up in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.